As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching, thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. So the bigger question for me is, if I am and you are this unlimited intelligence that transcends concepts, why does that unlimited intelligence engage in using concepts? For me, that's the big question. This this is the, well, first of all, um, you're in good company. This is an ancient <laughs> one. This is why This is why does the one become many? If you're intrigued by the nature of consciousness, its origins, and how it may relate to physics, meaning and purpose, then this conversation is a dream team. John Verveke is an award-winning lecturer at the University of Toronto and a professor of cognitive science, Buddhism, and psychology. With wide-reaching research, advancing an argument that explains the mindfulness revolution as well as the current meaning crisis. His lecture series, The Meaning Crisis, is on YouTube and is exquisite. I highly recommend it if you'd like to see one of the brilliant minds of our generation sharing his process of universal interpretation. Links as usual to every reference in this podcast are in the description. Donald Hoffman is a professor of cognitive science at UC Irvine and is the author of The Case Against Reality. Don argues that reality is not what you see. Instead, it's an interface of icons. Hoffman has appeared on TED, co-authored over 100 scientific articles, and is back along with John Verveke. Don's previous appearance on Theories of Everything, this podcast where we go over the mathematical details of his conscious agent theory, is in the description as well as the other podcasts with him, with Don Hoffman and Yosha Bach. And also John Verveke has appeared with Yosha Bach. John has also appeared with Bernardo Castrop as well as Solo. Every episode is linked in the description. Enjoy today's Theolocution with John Verveke and Donald Hoffman. We'll start off with something new, something new that you've both learned in the past couple weeks. And the criteria is something that has to be interesting to you, clearly, and then it also should be relevant to the conversation. So, John, why don't you start off? Um, what have I learned? I've been reading. Uh, I've learned a lot. I'm trying to think of something that might be relevant. I don't know how this conversation is going to go. So uh, <laughs> preemptive judgments of relevance are, are extremely uh, tricky. If um, someone knows relevance, it's you. <laughs> the fact that I study it doesn't mean... <laughs> it's like I love wisdom. It doesn't mean I'm wise. Um, I've been reading uh, an essay. Well, first an essay on Nishida's essay, and then Nishida's essay on intelligibility, um, and it's been very interesting to me because I'm seeing a, a rather profound convergence uh, between Zen philosophical notions of intelligibility and the Neoplatonic ones. And I'm finding that um, 
I'm finding that a very powerful uh, because that kind of convergence says something across cultures and time. You're getting that kind of convergence uh, lends plausibility to this examination of intelligibility. And as you know, I do a lot of work around what is intelligibility, et cetera. So I think that will turn out to be relevant uh, to our discussion. But I'm 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 also really happy to see where this discussion is, is going to go. I'm I'm really sort of excited to be here talking with Donald, and I, I know he has an extremely flexible mind. So I'm I'm just uh, but I think intelligibility uh, might come up as a relevant topic. Great. I want to make a note for later. You said that you love wisdom, but you're not sure if you're wise. I don't know. Does the love of wisdom imply that you're wise, though? In the same way that loving what's good implies that you're good? No, no. That's was exactly. That was exactly my point. My, my The fact that I study relevance and I love it doesn't mean I'm necessarily a, a, an expert at enacting it. Um, in fact, uh, people often go into psychology to study what they most lack. Um, and so I may actually be somebody who's initially very, I know within cer- social circumstances, I've generally been poor at picking up what's relevant. And uh, it's been uh, something that I've been learning over time very slowly. Such is the curse of academics. Okay, Don. Well, I, I've been um, working on a paper on relationship of consciousness to physics. And so I've been thinking a lot about that. We're about to submit it uh, this week and trying to show how we boot up space time and particle physics from a theory of consciousness. And so one thing, just as I was uh, driving yesterday, um, that I learned just by putting some pieces together, the, the physicists have this notion about um, the vacuum and relationship to certain mathematical structures called permutations. And they, they relate them, the vacuum to the trivial permutation and then particle interactions to these non-trivial permutations called decorated permutation. And, and I realized in our frame yesterday, so what I learned was as I was reviewing the mathematics of our mathematical framework of consciousness, I, I realized the dynamical aspect of conscious agents that corresponds to the vacuum and it, and it corresponds to agents um, whose dynamics um, is completely transient. It, it, they, they don't talk to anybody else and they don't even talk to themselves. So their their Markovian dynamics is completely transient. And that, that was what corresponds to what the physicists call the vacuum state. And so, but all of a sudden when I realized that, it, it, the whole thing begins to make sense. And so, uh, so for me, what was a, a big aha yesterday was, okay, I, I'm getting, starting with consciousness, trying to understand particle scattering in, in physics as a result of consciousness. And I understand what the vacuum means and it actually makes sense in the mathematical framework we're, we're dealing with. So, so I guess it's relevant because if, if we end up talking about consciousness and space, time and physics and physicalism, it, th- these kinds of concepts will be very, very relevant. Are you trying to study scattering because you're inspired by Nima's work? P- partly I'm trying to study scattering because ultimately if we want to have a mathematically precise scientific theory of consciousness that's going to be taken seriously by the scientific world, you've got to make predictions that are testable. And uh, a lot of my colleagues are thinking we need to make predictions at the neuroscience level. And, and of course, we eventually do. But, but, but brains are really complicated and uh, particles are very simple. So my, my goal is to make predictions about two gluons in, four gluon out scattering first, because not because that's harder, because it's easier than neuroscience. And the physicists have already given us a way into that. So they, they've said, if you want to do particle scattering, um, 
there are these structures beyond spacetime, like the amplitudehedron, and then the deeper structure is the decorated permutations. And so they say, if you can give us a decorated permutation, we can give you a scattering amplitude uh, for, for some kind of particle dynamics. And so what I've been working on is, is that, starting with the theory of consciousness that's dynamical, show how the decorated permutations come out. And from then, I can just then use all the wonderful work by the physicists like Nima and his collaborators that start with these decorated permutations and give you scattering amplitudes. The big goal is to start with consciousness and make predictions at colliders that are testable and hopefully new predictions that their current models can't make, right? I would like to, for example, explain why supersymmetry doesn't work uh, based on this dynamics of conscious agents. So, so not just, of course, we need to get all the stuff that they've already done and we need to be able to, you know, capture their predictions that they've already tested, but we need to make new predictions as well. So that's why I was really working on the scattering amplitudes because one, they're a way to empirically test the theory. Number two, we know this really well. We, we have the data, we know what the right answers are, and we know what the outstanding problems are. And, um, and, and, and then the fourth thing is, I would rather start there than neuroscience because it, it may seem counterintuitive, but, but the scattering is gonna be much, much easier than making connections with neuroscience that are, that are absolutely rigorous and testable to you know 10 decimal places or something like that. Okay, so the last broad question, and then I'm going to leave the floor open to you both to riff off of one another, is what is it that you find impactful about one another's work? And we'll start, Don, with you toward John, and then John, you'll respond, and then I'll interject fairly seldomly. Okay, yeah, well, with John, what's, what's beautiful is he's a, one of those rare, truly Renaissance individuals who, who knows ancient philosophy and modern philosophy, he knows modern neuroscience, uh, he, he knows evolutionary psychology. He knows um, the scientific method backwards and forwards, but he also knows mystical traditions. And he knows how to pick and choose from all of these in an intelligent way to get a synthesis that um, is then, I think, uh, potentially life-changing for many, many people to get meaning in our lives, to understand our current political situation. And, and so he's one of those rare individuals who, who, who really knows this broad variety of topics he knows how to integrate them. He's not just a dilettante, but he actually knows how to integrate them in, in, a, in a transformative way. And the other thing I love is, is um, his absolute demand for clean, precise, logical thinking when you're thinking, but then he's willing in spiritual traditions to go into silence as well. So, and I think both are absolutely essential for the full human being and the full human scientist. Thank you, Donald. That was, um... Very kind, and um, I, um, that speaks to what I like about you, um, right? Um, I think you, I think you and I belong to the school of what I like to call big picture cognitive science, which is not this or that. I mean, you do specialist work, and I do specialist work, but we we don't think that's the core of good science. That integrating into a broad framework is important. And frameworks like you that try to bridge between, uh, like that you do, like I do as well, try to bridge, you know, between a lot of the things that have been vivisected off each from each other in our society and our current scientific worldview. Um, I think you ask big questions. I think you, uh, you, I, somebody who talks about consciousness and ultimate reality 
and yet wants to talk about it in a scientifically <clears throat> rigorous, even mathematical, formalized mathematical way. Um, you can see why I deeply resonate with that. I may not agree with all of your particular conclusions, uh, and th that's to be said. I mean, do any two academics? Uh, but the point is, um, uh, I think, if I can put it this way, in many important ways, we're on the same side of the tracks. We think we should be doing these broad uh, integrations that are not facile, but are pertinent, precise, well-argued for, well-evidenced, yeah, and, and that um, they have important existential, sapiential, and therefore spiritual, in that sense, consequences that should be respected. Uh, we should not limit um, the pool from which we're drawing our analyses to just sort of current philosophy or current science, but much more broad, uh, cross-cultural, uh, cross-historical, cross-disciplinary. Um, so, I, I mean... Like I say, I'm sure we'll get into disagreement, but I, I, I want to say this up front, which, which is the man. I often say this, and I mean it, and people can see that I mean it in how I uh, how I how I carry myself in discussions. The manner in which you're doing these things, I think, is really, really right in a profound and important way, um, and I think you you present it in a way that's often um, very challenging to people who have have a much more, I want to be kind here, much more specialized, I was going to say blinkered, but a much more specialized um, epistemology. And I think that is really needed now. I think all, I'll speak for psychology. We, we both are in psychology, at least we both have a point. I have one in psychology and cognitive science. You have one in psychology and other things too, um, uh, philosophy, cognitive science. Uh, but one of the things that bothers me about psychology is this emphasis on innovation um, as opposed to integration. I would argue that's one of the things driving the replication crisis. And I think the resistance to right, creating broad philosophically astute frameworks within psychology is something that needs to be challenged. And I see that you and I are both doing that. And I think that's very, very important. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. 
Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson Razor works with the standard dual-edge blades that give you that old-school shave with the benefits of this new-school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. You know what? Let me ask a question. So I'll start this off with the perhaps the most basic question. We say that conscious or some people say that consciousness is fundamental. And then there's various questions like, well, what is consciousness? So here's another question. Well, what is fundamental? So what's fundamental if one doesn't assume reductionism? And if one does have to assume reductionism for something to be fundamental, then does that mean that conceptually reductionism is more fundamental than the X that you're saying is fundamental? So anyway, what is fundamental? I'll I'll be happy to start. Mm. Sure. Sure. So I think that there's two important and different concepts going on here. One is um, reductionism, which has to do with an assumption about space-time being fundamental. And with reductionism, the idea is that as you go to smaller and smaller scales in space-time, you get to more and more fundamental objects and more and more fundamental laws. So that's a particular idea. And and by the way, reductionism is assuming uh, um, that space-time itself is fundamental. I mean, because it's, it's taking smaller scales of space as being associated with more and more fundamental objects and laws. But Fundamental for me is a much broader concept than, than say, space-time. Fundamental is a property of scientific theories. So every scientific theory um, has assumptions. No, no theory in science is free of any assumptions. And th- these assumptions are the foundation of that scientific theory. And so what's fundamental is, vis- is, is with respect to a particular theory. What, what does that take as the fundamental uh, concepts for building that theory. So I, I, I think the notion of fundamental is a theory relative concept. You should ask, um, what's fundamental in this particular scientific theory? In Einstein's theory of gravity, space-time is fundamental. In uh, you know evolution by natural selection, we have the notion of physical objects in space-time and things like genes and competition and replication. Those are, those are fundamental concepts in, in that theory. But you can have uh, different scientific theories with, with different fundamental concepts. Most of modern science does take space-time as fundamental, but then they'll also add other 
other concepts as well to be fundamental. Like in evolution, you'll, you'll also add organisms and DNA and replication and, and, and so forth. So, but, and so most scientific theories also inherit the assumption that uh, reductionism is a, is a good method. Most of them do. Um, um, I'll just, I'll turn it over to John, but I'll just say that, that physicists now are saying that space-time is not fundamental, like, like Nimar, Khan, Hamed, and, and, and others, and, and that therefore reductionism um, is, is doomed. Not just space-time, but reductionism is, is doomed. Um, but, but I'll stop there. So I agree with, uh, I think I'm agreeing with Donald, that um, I would want to distinguish uh, reductionism from claims of fundamentality. Um, I think reductionism is very problematic. Uh, it has, uh, it gets you into certain performative contradictions if you try to make an absolute complete reductionism because it gets you into saying things like only the bottom level is real. And I know that from this level up here, which isn't real. And you get all kinds of performative contradictions going on there. Uh, you have measurement problems. Uh, Wolfgang Smith has brought this out. You know, the, the, the ruler can't be a quantum thing <laughs> to measure the quantum things or you get into, and I, I won't review that there's a host of problems where I think reductionism and, and, and a completely flat ontology aren't uh, justifiable. Briefly, why do you say performative contradiction and not contradiction? Performative contradiction means that there isn't uh, a contradiction between propositions. There's contradictions between the activity and the proposition stated. A performative, con here's one, I'm asleep right now. Okay, that doesn't make any sense. Or it's a performative contradiction because the action requires the, the falsity of the proposition, right? So can that's you explain why suggesting that there's some ground that's more real than a higher level is a performative contradiction? Ah, uh, what I was saying is if you if you say that the bottom level is the only level that's at re real, that is clearly not the level at which the science is being done. The science is being done by scientists using gauges and writing things down and using computers and using language and making theories and going to conferences. And if all of that is not real because it's somehow epiphenomenal or illusory, then how is it that that level is giving you epistemic access to the real bottom level. You're saying like, it's be like saying I'm in the middle of a dream and in that dream, I, I, I dreamt that Santa Claus was real, therefore Santa Claus is real. Like if, if, you, if the level at which you're doing the science is illusory, it undermines all the claims you're making from that level. You have to be able to give an, onto an ontological reality to science if any of its conclusions are gonna be taken to be real. Now that's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So I, that's, I, and it, there's a host of other arguments, and I, I want to put reductionism aside for that. Now, fundamental, and I agree with Donald completely, fundamental is theoretic. Um, but one thing you can be connoting, not denoting, is what you think is the, the ontological referent, uh, which is what some people sometimes mean by fundamental. And I, I, th I think instead of using fundamental, which is a theoretic property, we might want to use an ontological property like real. And then you might be asking, what is it to say that something is real or to say that one thing is more real than another? And I think that is a, an important question. And I think that question can't be decided by just looking within any particular theory for its particular fundamentals. Because what we're asking, I think, I would argue, when we're asking questions about reality, is what, ma what, what makes possible any and all such intelligibility? What makes possible any possible theory that might turn out to be true? There has to be some aspect. Because we take it, I think, that reality, in some sense, corresponds to 
our ability to make our claim to find our claims true or our skills apply uh, applying or our perspectives present um etc so i i'm waving over with that with my hand because that's a big thorny knot but I'm trying to pull apart. I think there's reductionism, which we put aside. There's fundamentality, and I I agree with Donald what he just said about that. And but I think we have an extra theoretic notion, which is the notion of realness, which is something like that which can make you know various theories true. How do they do it? And then the question might be: Are you a pluralist or monist about that? For example, that might be a starting point. Do you think there are many different realities that? make theories true, you could be some kind of relativist in that way? Or do you think that there is a ultimate reality in some important unified fashion, etc.? So there, there's three different questions we could be asking. Reductionism, which I, I'd largely put aside. What's the fundamental of any theory? But you might ask, what's reality? And you might ask it in saying, what is it that could possibly integrate non-reductively all these fundamentals together? So that we would have an overall integrated coherent account. That's th those th those are the kinds of moves you can make. Did that make sense? Mm -hmm. yeah. Sure. So, Don, do you have anything to say in response? I think that you know the notion of reality is, is an an extra notion beyond just what's fundamental to a particular yeah. theory. That the and, and this whole area is very very tricky. You know. For the very kinds of performative contradiction reasons that, that John just mentioned, yeah, yeah, yeah. very very easy to step on landmines everywhere here. But but it seems to me that that Gödel's incompleteness theorem tells us that in some sense there is no theory of everything. Right, any formal system that is rich enough to model the axioms of arithmetic is is either inconsistent or incomplete. And, and we call it Gödel's incompleteness theorem because we don't take the inconsistency thing too seriously. So that means no matter what scientific theory we have, it's not the final word. There'll always be, if, if, the, if the theory is rich enough to do arithmetic, and most scientific theories are, they wouldn't be taken seriously. So they're rich enough to do arithmetic, so they're rich enough to have a Gödel statement that, uh, that is outside their scope and yet is true, um, but not provable within that theory. And and no matter how much you add those new statements to your your scientific theory, there'll always be new statements that that so that that means that our there there is no scientific theory of everything. And the notion of truth and 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 I think the related notion of reality, and that's why I'm bringing this up, the notion of truth and and the, and the notion of reality, in some sense, I think will forever transcend scientific theory. Mm -hmm. And of course, mm -hmm. I'm a scientist, so I'm not saying, oh, throw up our hands and yeah. no, 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 <laughs> there's something very deep going on here that, 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 that theories turn out to be empirically quite valuable, right? We, we're, I'm alive today because of scientific theories that, that led to medicine that has saved my life. So, so the, you know, the, the stuff works, even though Gödel tells me that it, that it's, um, the theory is trivial compared to the truths that the, that the theories uh, can't prove, right? So, so there, so the fact that you can't have a theory of everything, um, and you can't ultimately know the the truth with a capital T, and therefore, and this is where John may want to disagree. I don't know. Therefore, we can't know what what's reality with a capital R. We we can only say these are the best theories we have so far, but we 
need to modestly and humbly say, um, that's our theory, that's not the truth, and I would be a fool to say that that's the reality. But, so I, I would, but I should probably stop and let John react. I just want to thank Donald for being, I hope I, I follow his example and continually make space for him as well. Yeah. Okay, great, great. So apologies for me not making space here, for taking some space. So with Gödel's incompleteness theorem, you said that we may never know truth with the capital T, and then you said that a toe may not exist. However, there's the difference between a toe existing and us knowing the toe. And when you said that we don't know truth with a capital T, to me that truth with a capital T is the same as the toe. That's a statement, then I'll get you to respond to that. And then second is that there are certain assumptions in Gödel's theorem. So for instance, that the laws would have to be based in first order logic or that the laws are consistent because consistency is actually an implicit requirement. And it'd be strange to say that the world is inconsistent, though there are some people who I'm sure on the more mystic end who may say that reality is a contradiction. Paradoxes are at the bottom and the top and there's no bottom and top, but there is. So those are some ways of getting around it. And that's why when I hear people like myself, maybe even two years ago, would say Gödel's incompleteness theorem says there is no toe. Uh, that's a bit dubious to me. So I want to hear what are your responses to that, and then John, so please then comment. I'd like I'd like to hear Donald's response to that first. Right. Well, so I I would say I mean your point is well taken, Kurt. The way I would think about it is to say the fact that we can't have a theory of everything doesn't mean that there isn't a truth out there. A, a real, a real true reality. And from spiritual traditions, we learn that, that perhaps um, that's what you are. You're not divorced from that reality. You are that reality. And, and you can't know that reality through intellectual and conceptual knowing, but you can know it firsthand by being that reality. And so, and so, so there, there could be this notion of truth and reality uh, that transcends the notion of a theory of everything. See, a theory of everything starts off with a finite set of concepts and, and, and says, here's how far I can go with this set of concepts. Um, and so my, my argument would be, you know, along the lines of, of Gödel's kind of argument, that if you start with any finite axiomatization or any finite set of concepts, you can come up with an infinite number of theorems. Absolutely, you can come up with an infinite number of theorems, but there will be probability zero compared to all the truths that 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 um, are out there um and so that's why i would i mean but again there's this meta notion that that john was bringing up so when i'm i'm here i am talking about truth uh using words um and but but saying the concepts themselves have have very limited meaning the the only escape out of it is for me is is this issue that um the spiritual traditions bring up which is um you can't talk about the truth but you are it your very being is it. And, and so when, when you speak, that being itself is projecting down into a finite set of concepts to talk with, with other avatars of the being. Um, but, and, and so I think that there's a way not to be self-refuting um, in that. But I, again, I would love to have John contradict me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to contradict you or not. Um, yeah, I... I, I, I I think the Godel argument still has value with respect to formal systems. Um, whether or not theories are formal systems, I think it's a genuine philosophical question. Um, I think, you know, we clearly had theories before there was math. 
um, and they're bona fide theories. Plato has a theory of the psyche, and uh, whether or not you could call that a formal system, um, I think is is questionable. Um, and, and yet, there was a lot of. I would say there's a lot of truth in Plato's uh, theory. It turned out to be, you know, it's been got a, quite a bit of a empirical uh, confirmation uh, recently. So, um, so I'm a little bit hesitant about that. But I take your point to be correct. Uh, Donald, in fact, I take it very deeply, and I actually think this is a platonic point, and this is something that comes out in Palania's work as well. I take one of the ways in which we determine that something's real is precisely it, its inexhaustibleness. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, But it's not cacophonous inexhaustibility, and this is the thing. This is what I think Plato meant by the good. We get it's in, it, everything is an inexhaustible fount of intelligibility. We can learn more and more. So I do not think there is a limited number of truths about anything. I think the number of true, even the number of true descriptions of this very plain stone um, is indefinitely large. It's inexhaustible, um, etc. And this is what I talk about, multi-aspectuality and things like that. So I don't think of, um, I don't think I'm disagreeing with you because I think that being an inexhaustible fount of intelligibility is precisely one of the ways in which we determine that something is real. Uh, and um, and I think that for phenomenological reasons and for, uh, for cognitive reasons. I also think that um, truth is a retrospective notion. Um, like real, it's a comparative notion. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I say something's r- real or something's an illusion, I'm always making a comparison. When I say this is true, what I'm really saying um, is this is more true than that because here's the limitations that that have that I can see from here. But I'm a, I, 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 right? I'm a fallibilist. That doesn't mean that I then conclude, oh, this theory. I can stop here because no theory has ever done that, and there's no good reason to believe. So, right, I'll come to, I'll have another transformative moment where I'll say, oh, but that theory turns out to be limited because of this. And to what do I point to that? The entire history of science, the entire history of science shows that to be the case again and again and again. And I think that's the notion. I think the notion of truth we're using is a retrospective comparative notion. Um, I don't think that that means it's an illusion. I think we should give up the Cartesian notion that truth points to some complete, absolute, formalized grasp of something, and that the criterion of knowledge is certainty. Uh, and because we've tried that and it, it collapses, it certainly doesn't underwrite science. Uh, because, you know, it's it's very plausibly the case that many of our current best theories will turn out to be rejected in the future, right? This is Lawton's, uh, you know, pessimistic argument. I think it has to be taken very seriously. Now, the last thing that Donald said, and what I think with him is convergent with everything I just said, sends shivers up my spine because, you know, I've been I've been arguing that there are, are kinds of knowing other than propositional inferential. There's procedural, there's perspectival, and there's participatory, which is knowing by being. And I agree that many of these mystical traditions say, you know, the, the, the way to come in most contact with reality is not through your conceptual propositional knowing, but it's through your perspectival and all ultimately your participatory knowing. And I agree that that, that is always the case. Now, give me a moment here. What I mean by that is something like what Marlo Ponti or, or Forty Cogsai would say, right, is 
even my propositional things are ultimately dependent on skills. My skills are dependent on perspectives. My perspectives are always dependent on participatory identity. And so the spiritual traditions are not, they're just explicating something that is always the case. They're not proposing something that's over there that only only the great gifted ones can realize. Um, I mean, that's part of, I think, what a little bit wrong with the way some of these spiritual traditions have been taken up, right? Um, but I think what the spiritual traditions are pointing to is exactly that fact that that there's a there's an asymmetric dependence relation. The propositional is dependent on the procedural, the procedural is dependent on the perspectival, and the perspectival is dependent on the participatory. And so for me, I try to understand realness in terms of what best integrates those four together um, when we're making claims about how things are. Well, very good. Very, very good. I agree. I like the idea that the truth is related to some kind of inexhaustible uh, arena that we're yeah. in. Keep keep learning and 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 I also in the case of scientific theories and, and the relationship to that notion of truth. For me, what's impressive about a scientific theory is when it predicts its own demise. Oh uh, yes, sorry for interrupting. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, that that that's for for me. A scientific theory is one that that uh, when you really understand the theory, it tells you the limits of its concepts and it tells you where it stops and it tells you that at, at this point you will need uh not just a tweak you will need a new framework yeah mm -hmm. you will need a new set of foundational concepts and but the the nice thing about science in this regard is that the constraint is whatever new framework that you if this current theory is is one that we take seriously like like einstein's theory of gravity or quantum field theory right and it tells you its limits or evolution by natural selection. And this theory that, that we say, okay, you know, right now, this is one of the best theories humanity has ever had. And, and we look for its limits. When we get the new deeper theory with new conceptual framework, perhaps, uh, we don't just get, pick that willy nilly and however we want, the, there is a constraint. The, our old theories can't tell us what's beyond. They can tell us that there's something beyond, but they can't tell us what is beyond. But they can veto our bad ideas. So what we have to do is build our new framework with new concepts. And then we need to show that there is some kind of projection. A simplified submodel of our new, more general model gives us back evolution by natural selection or gives us back quantum field theory and space time. That's, that's the constraint. If we can't do that, or when we project it back, we get something that includes evolution and a little bit more, for example. It could be an augmented theory of evolution. It doesn't have to be exactly. But it better not lose anything that we know and love from evolutionary theory. Or better tell us in convincing ways why we were mistaken about that aspect of it, right? So so that's the constraint. So so I I, I see truth and, and, and the real as, uh, you know, you know, these absolute things that, that our concepts will never, they will scratch the surface, but they will never probe the depths. And what science is, and, and, and of course, even, you know, uh, pre-scientific theories like, like uh, Plato's, for example, as, as you mentioned, that what these theories are doing is using concepts to, to explore yes. truth. And, and there, with, with science, what we get that's new is 
precise, mathematical precise statements of the limit of the theory. And, and what a wonderful um, cure for dogmatism. Because when your own theory tells you its limits, if you buy the theory, you have to buy the limits. And so you have to buy that you don't have the final answer. And that's, that's really, uh, the, so that's the cure for dogmatism. So, so theories that, uh, I love a theory where the theory itself is humble enough to tell you where it stops. And, but, but also smart enough to be able to veto any bad ideas you have for what's next. On that note, where do you both see your own theories indicating their limits? Well, first of all, I want to reply to what Donald said, because I think he just put his finger on something that I've been arguing, and I think there's a point of convergence here. We put a lot of emphasis on coherence and other um, features for our understanding of rationality. But I think this capacity to do what Donald has just argued, which is a genuine pa uh, capacity to afford principled self-correction, vetoing things out, and then pointing beyond. Um, I think this is a hallmark of rationality that is not emphasized enough. Um, and this is, I often tell my students, even at a heuristic level, if you want to assess somebody's rationality, look how much they are willing to criticize their own work at some point or correct their previous work. Like, don't expect it in like in 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 the moment they're talking because that's. But like, can they can they look at something they did a year or two ago and go, oh, here's all the mistakes in there, right? Um, and that I think is really really important. Now, um, um, I, I I think. Um, I think what I would say is that, uh, and then I'll uh, um, I'll ask you to re-ask your question, Kurt, if, if sure. you want to change it, modify it. But for me, therefore, um, truth is like notions like orientation and navigation. Um, you're, you're properly oriented, and the orientation rules a lot of things out. We're not going that way. We're not going that way. We're not going that. And then navigation is constantly telling you how you have to adjust and, and reformulate how you're doing. And you might find from the navigation that you need to reorient. Right. That's a and that's always a possibility. But that's not the same as wandering around willy nilly. Right. There's a very, there's a very big difference. And so that's what I meant when I think truth is always retrospective. You can always look back and say, hey, look at how far we have relied. We are closer. We, we may have to change our direction, but we've made genuine, you know, I'm using the spatial metaphor here, progress. And so that's what I think is really crucial. Um, I, I, this may sound like I, I'm, 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 splitting a hair. But I, I want to argue that uh, I'm not because this notion of truth as orientational and navigational, rather than as a completed grasp of mm -hmm, something, mm -hmm. uh, I think is really, really important right now. And I think we really have to pause and, 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 and for example, let me just say one thing, and then I'll shut up unless you let you re-ask re your, your question. But I just wanted to pick up on this point because Donald was saying something about theories and I think it directly also corresponds to how we should understand rationality. Um, and, 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 and so if what he said is true, and I, th I agree it is, and what I'm saying is true, that means that there are a lot of, and this is, ties back again to what the spiritual traditions can hold out for us. There are a lot of truths that are not accessible to us unless we're willing to undergo significant transformation. Right. Once you give up, oh, no, I can just grasp this thing with this universal method, Leibniz's calculus. Once you give that up and you say, no, 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 there's going to be this constantly going on, that the, the, like the, the, the 
presupposition that you can sort of remain epistemically the grammar of your uh, of your epistemic machinery can remain unaltered in order to get access to truth i think that is uh deeply challenged if not outright falsified but that presupposition of a universal method that does not require personal transformation is fundamental to the whole cartesian framework and see i think the spiritual traditions are there reminding us that no 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 your methods can do a lot but there's a lot of truths that are only disclosable to you after you go through profound self-correction which is profound self-transcendence which is profound transformation i just wanted to make that point very clear I, I, I like your question that is pending, so we'll, we'll, I want to get to it about the, the limits of our own theories. But, but please, but it is transformative. So you, it's not you can't just be a brain in a vat. It's the whole person that's that's yeah, involved yeah. in this yes. process. And for example, letting go of physicalism, since the idea that space time is doomed. For example, that so this is just in the last 20, 30 years, physicists are saying space time is doomed. And that's not a trivial thing to say. When you yes. say space-time is doomed, what, what goes along with that is amazing, both mathematically, uh, scientifically, but also personally. And, and, and it hurts because most of, of us as physicalists then think of ourselves as our bodies. I am my body. That's, that is what I am, and my conscious experiences just are, for example, what my brain produces, and that's what I am. And that's part of that whole, I mean, that's an impl a clean implication of the physicalist framework. You are your body, and when your, your brain dissolves, um, whatever consciousness you may have, you, you may think consciousness is an illusion. I'm good friends of mine, uh, for example, Keith Frankish thinks that the consciousness is an illusion, or, or Dan Dennett. So, so that consciousness, whether it's real or illusory, is gone when your body dies. That's a, but if you let go of physicalism, it's not just, uh, oh, okay, well, I just changed a few assumptions. No, no, who I am is now up for grabs. I was just a body in space-time. Now I cannot be a body in space-time because space-time is not fundamental. So what am I? So now it's not just this intellectual dispassionate, it's who I am as an individual that's up for grabs. And so that becomes very emotional too. You, you, you add, people get afraid. Sometimes when I talk about, we don't see reality as it is and, and space-time isn't fundamental, I, the, people throw out a, 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 a few key counterpoints. And when I answer them, all of a sudden I see fear. And, and that's this personal aspect of this thing. This is not just an intellectual brain on the mat thing. It, it becomes very personal. And so your whole, not only intellectual, but emotional assessment of who I am and all that that means is also at stake here. So I agree with John that that's, it's very transformative. It's not just writing theories down and dispassionately looking at them. Okay, well, let's speak about a mental health aspect here, because when we're referring to changing one's identity, then it sounds like that's all some process of enlightenment and salutary if you were only to push through the fear but then there's also psychosis and derealization and depersonalization. And generally in these more spiritual discussions, I don't hear much about the negative aspects of these transformative experiences or of contending with ideas. I know for myself, I haven't looked this up, but people told me it was like a dark night of the soul. Mm -hmm. So I still have to look that up. And the reason I haven't looked it up is because 
at the time. It was too close to me. I couldn't even look up. I was afraid that I had every mental illness. Like I thought, do I have schizophrenia? Do I have... I don't even know what that is. I still don't know what that is. So I had to talk to psychiatrists and therapists and find out. And they said, no, you have anxiety. Like you have extreme anxiety. You've got to quiet down. And also then they said, hey, Kurt, in these comments, like I read the comments and people say that what you had was an awakening experience where I felt like everything was in my head. It was like solipsism. And frequently my grasp of reality was so tenuous and my identification with my body was so loose and it wasn't pleasant in the least. But then in the comment section, I hear people saying, and I imagine that they're well-intentioned, they would say like, you need to push through that the hero encounters and the hero doesn't run away. And then it's making me feel like a coward, like I'm this person that this recreant, craven, gutless and invertebrate. So I was speaking to a therapist and she said, you know, firstly, this idea of the hero that encounters, that's a bit dangerous because it can give you this hero complex. And secondly, you are encountering it by coming, by voluntarily coming to therapy mm -hmm. and doing exposure mm -hmm. therapy. So she's like, hey, read those comments, read them, realize that they're just words on a page, go closer to them, like various exercises. So I do that and I'm like, geez, Louise, like looking at my fingers and feeling like I have fingers, that's salutary for myself. For some other people, they could say that, well, suffering comes from an identification with the ego or the body. For me, all, all my pleasure, like everything, the beautifulness of life is finally back and it's like back at a more deep, rich level than it ever was. It reminds me of this quote about T.S. Eliot, like you come back to the place and you know it mm -hmm. for the first time. I don't feel as if I've completely transformed like I know it for the first time. I certainly am seeing it differently and experiencing it differently. Maybe that's what he meant. Anyway, so the more nefarious aspects of the meditation or whatever we think of as meditation in the West... So our misinterpretations of Eastern or, or just adoptions of certain practices without the whole community around it. And these lessons of enlightenment and so on, they can be extremely propitious for many people, but then also dire for many others. And I don't hear much of that negative aspect. And then recently I happened upon the work of Anna Lutkajtis. So forgive me, Anna, if I'm mispronouncing your name. She's a PhD candidate from... Sydney, and her work was brought to me by Shoshana Jones Square, who's a professor at the University of Bishop, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, Anna studies the dark side of Dharma. And so I want to interview her. I guess an overarching question is, what terrifies you about your work? I want to answer that, right? Um, first of all, if you look in these traditions, and when I teach meditation, I do the same thing. They warn about all kinds of things that can happen to you. It's only when the, you get the Western importation of these um, and, the, and, and, and the commodification that says there's a panacea practice. There's a single practice you can do that will bring you bliss or something. And I think this is pernicious bullshit. Um, I do not think, you know, from my understanding of how cognition works, that there is anything like a panacea practice. And I've had enough traditions with many kinds, uh, sorry, enough experience with many traditions that you, there are stuff that goes really, like, really challenges you in, in ways you said you can, and by the way, it's from St. John of the Cross, Dark Knight of the Soul, um, right? Um, and he wrote it for good reason. Um, I think what you need, and I've argued for this elsewhere, Kurt, so I won't repeat all the arguments, but you need an ecology of practices that sits within a community of people so that when the dark shit happens, you have people there with you. You have other practices that can prevent you from spinning off. That's why you went to therapy. 
Therapy was a, a, a comp compensatory practice that brought you into realignment with the anomalous experiences, so you were able to integrate it. So I think uh, I think we have to be really careful. I, I, I take the criticism well. And by the way, people have been doing this for a while. Look at the work of Willow Barton. She's done work on some of the, the dark stuff that comes out in mindfulness practices. Now, one of the things that, and, and, th and this is telling, so I, I was at a conference and she was doing this and I hope this does not come off as self-promotional because that's not the intent. She was saying this and I put up my hand and I say, but I always warn my students that they're going to get these weird things when they're meditating. They're going to get really cold or really hot. They're going to feel that they're floating or sinking and they might feel disconnected. Like I, I warned them about all of that and, you know, and how to incorporate it in. And then, and, and then she sort of looked at me strangely and I said, well, don't most instructors in the West warn people about all of this? She said, no, they don't. Right. Now, that to me is the most empirically relevant fact, not the traditions, not, is that there's something going on in Western culture with its commodification and its comfort zoning that precludes people doing this on a regular and reliable basis when we have clear historical evidence that in situ, these traditions did this on a regular and reliable basis. And so I, I'm not saying that there aren't dark nights of the soul, but you don't have to be isolated, alone, feel that you're going insane. Like you, you can have an ecology of practices and a community and a tradition that allows you to properly, and I don't say push through, because for every hero myth, there's a hubris myth. You don't push through this. You have to, you have to listen to other people really deeply at that point. You had to listen to your therapist. Right. That's what it's really indicating. But this individualistic, commodified comfort zone way in which we've appropriated spirituality, I think that is where I would point the critical finger. We like, by like, this is one of the, I think this is one of the symptoms of the, the, the meaning crisis. You know, 40% of the population have these anomalous, visionary, mystical experiences and they have no, they have nothing right. that allows right. them to incorporate it into their lives. But that's, that's not a generalized feature of all human civilization or culture that is specific to ours in a way i think that really reflects the meaning crisis so i think we speak to it but i think we speak to it while making this criticism that i just made yeah i i agree and and, and i uh would just add that in meditation what you're what you're doing is we, we all have a model of who we are i have my beliefs about what i am and most of those beliefs are false, right? So I am my body. I I am um, what's what makes me important is I am a professor or I am an artist or or and what my significance comes from how many people have seen my work or what people are saying about my work. So we I I identify who I am with some thing, some body, some piece of work, some reputation, and so forth, and and the spiritual practice is i think a practice of letting you know no that's not what you are now that is going to be extremely painful because effectively if i am that thing and i'm having to let that go i'm dying i am i am experiencing a death because i thought i was that and the spiritual birth comes at the price of the death of the old thing I thought I was. And I, I believed it very, very deeply. So I'm, I'm emotionally attached to that view of myself. I'm emotionally attached to the idea that it's important for me to be famous, 
or to be the best musician or to whatever my whatever my thing might be. I'm attached to all those things. And the fear that I that you experience and, and for me, um, I just expect this on a daily basis. I expect to experience fear because I'm in the process of letting go of deeply held um, false identifications of who I am that have, you know, and I don't blame myself. We're born with them. You know, I, I was trained in them. That this, and now it's time to to grow up and let them go. And so I just expect on a daily basis to um, to face pain. And in fact, it's when the pain comes up that I go, OK, ah, here's here's my chance to really grow. So I look at the pain. OK, what identification with some false belief about who I am do I need to face now? Oh, oh, I really believe that it's really important. So someone cuts me off on the road. I'm driving. Why do I get upset? OK, so. There's all the, the whole, okay, I believe I'm a separate person from that other person. For example, that's one of my first beliefs. Is that true? Or is it true that there's only one of us? So there's all sorts of beliefs that I have to, 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 to face. And in the Christian tradition, I mean, it, it's, you know, mostly you see this in the East where you're, you're doing this kind of thing. But, but I think G, even Jesus spoke to this when, when he said, if, if anyone will come after me, they have to take up their cross daily, um, and, and, you know, and die basically, you know, every day. So it's, and that's what, the way I, I view it. it. I'm dying to my old model of myself and it hurts because I really believed it. And I'm having to let go of all these old beliefs that I, that I have had for, for decades perhaps. And so it's, they're, they're not just intellectual, they're limbic. They, there's emotions attached to them. And so it's a very visceral kind of thing. And so anxiety comes up out of it. And so as I face them and, and really, face them and, and, and Kurt, you know, being in your body is important because that's where you, so I, I get in my body and really, really feel it. Don't, don't turn away from it. And, and then often, um, you know, it doesn't need to be intellectual, but it, it, it just needs to be present. But eventually I will often see, aha, there was that same old belief. Okay. The reason I'm in pain is because I believe I'm that and that's false. And I don't want to let go of it. It hurts to let go of that. And it's, it's scary because I'm going from what I thought I knew into something that I don't know. So it's also the, it's the fear of death and the fear of the unknown wrapped up into one wonderful ball. And that's what we have to do <laughs> is to face the fear of the death of what we know and the move into the unknown that we don't know. And so there's two fears and it's, and it really is, um, so I, my feeling is that that's not a side, that's part of the whole practice. And, and you should be told up front that that's what it is to grow spiritually. It's to face that fear, those two fears, and to face them head on and to get help when it's too, too painful, right? For most of us, it's really helpful to have someone else who's maybe let go of that particular fear and gone into that particular part of the unknown that can sort of help us and take us by the hand and, and move us along. It's at this point that I recommend you watch The Toe Podcast with Lillian Dindo and Carl Friston, part two, for more help with dealing with derealization and depersonalization, that is, for help when subsumed by the dark side of the spiritual journey. Links in the description. I just well, so thank, thank you, Donald. I, I don't have any disagreement with that. Um, I, uh, I just wanted now to go back to your question about what, in, I mean, I... I'll point to, I mean, if you go in my series, I criticized earlier models of wisdom that I had published. 
uh, if people want to see me doing that. Um, I recently came in the summer to out of interacting. I was at um, Maple with the Respond Retreat, and there was uh, interacting with the Buddhist mo- monks there. And, um, uh, and I, I came to sort of an insight um, that made me realize that, w- that there was something, there was an important dimension of my thinking that had been wrong, or at least incomplete. And there's Godel again. Um, so as you know, uh, I, I'll assume people know because they've been here and uh, I have this idea about relevance realization as a central feature of cognition and intelligence and even uh, consciousness. Um, um, and I'd always assumed that there was a sense in which it was always always being presupposed. Um, but I realized and that relevance realization can come to a state, if that's even the right word, um, at least where it realizes its own irrelevance. Uh, bec- and we, we have to take it that relevance realization has some recursive ability because that's what we see in an insight. We realize that a previous pattern of relevance realization is actually wrong or irrelevant. So the recursivity is built into relevance realization, but it can come to realize that, that not just this or that, but that it itself is irrelevant. And that would be when it is no longer trying to work with beings, but with being itself, capital B. Because then relevance realization is actually irrelevant because it make it, it, it right because all you do is start to do this is like the Tao right you start to parse it out and then you get the combinatorial explosion that relevance realization has to deal with, but relevance realization can come to a moment where it realizes that it's irrelevant and fall away and that is when you are trying to enter ratio religio right relationship with being. Uh, with the ground of being per se, and I, and for me, that was a way of taking something that I had been experiencing and talking a lot about within the mindfulness practices, which is experiences of non-duality, and the work I've always done on relevance realization. I couldn't put them together, um, and so I, and what I had to do was I had to like, like, like like uh, that Donald's just saying is I had to give up, right? A kind of, it's always relevance realization kind of idea, uh, but that actually there's a possibility for it to functionally find itself irrelevant and then open us up phenomenologically to no set of beings, but to being or the ground of being, depending on your ontology per se. And then the point there isn't any cognitive grasp, but to be as connected with it as you possibly can. So that's just an example of a, an important, I considered that an important correction. Um, terror. I'm afraid that my work, especially the stuff I've recently just published a few months ago, integrating relevance realization and predictive processing is going to make AI, like autonomous AI, more really more possible. Um, and that terrifies me. Uh, um and, and and not just sort of egocentric terror, like moral terror, uh, like a, 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 a sense of of moral responsibility. Are those ever the same? Some people would say that anytime we think of morality, it comes from a sense of ego, and that as soon as you dissolve the ego, you dissolve morality. There is no good, there is no bad. So when you say that it's not an egocentric manner, but a moral manner. 
that that I I I am very hesitant to uh, say that morality is egocentric and in, 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 in to core. Are there theories of, of morality that are uh, yes, but uh, I think there are theories that are ontocentric rather than egocentric. Um, but can we do that later? Can because I first want to finish this point, which sure. is <laughs> which is right. Um, I'm wrestling with this, and the way I'm wrestling with it is, um, first of all, uh, I, I, I'm hoping that the work I'm doing, especially with a lot of other people, to integrate these kinds of theoretical discoveries with ideas about the deep connections between predictive processing, relevance, realization, meaning in life, uh, wisdom, overcoming self-deception, all the sapiential stuff we've been talking about. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. I'm hoping that because I've been arguing for the connection, that those two things will stay wedded together. Uh, and um, I don't know if I'm right about that. Uh, I, uh, I, I, I like. Sometimes I get like, uh, right. I don't know if I'm right about it. Um, but right now, I can't see. I can't go back. <laughs> um, and, and also, I think there, there's so many. There was so much value. I mean, we published the paper, and we gave what we thought was the first explanation of the autism psychosis continuum rather than just description think of the 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 you know the the psychotherapeutic and pedagogical benefits that could have right so like like you but um i i i do hesitate about this about whether or not my attempts to keep the science and the spirituality wedded together um uh you know, there's no teleology to for that to me. I could, me and, and this whole community, what Sevilla Kings calls this little corner of the internet, we're, we're trying to do that. We could fail. And I think that scares me. Okay, so Don, just to repeat, the question was about the limitations of one's own theories. 
And then also, I saw your eyes light up on the mention of morality and ego, so you can comment on that as an aside <laughs> after it. Sure, sure. So, <clears throat> I'll I'll talk about my theory in just a second. But I'll just I'll just mention a, a, a classic case, which is Einstein's general relativity together with quantum field theory. Right? Those theories assume space time is fundamental in in their fundamental concepts. Right? Quantum fields are defined over space time. Einstein's theory of gravity is is the theory in which uh, space time is fundamental, and its curves are what we experience as gravity. So, so space is the fundamental concept that's going on there. So you might say, well, how can that theory then say, or it, it entail that space-time is doomed without contradicting itself, right? I mean, that, well, how do we avoid shooting ourselves in the foot? Well, that's the glory of science, because when you put those theories together, they tell you precisely, they say at 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, and 10 to the minus 43 seconds, this theory stops. It no longer makes sense. There are no operational meanings for space and time at those levels. So, so that's the beauty of those theories. Even though Einstein didn't expect that to come out, he didn't even expect black holes to come out. I mean, uh, Schwarzschild found that solution to his equations. So when you take your ideas, even if you're a genius like Einstein, and you put them in mathematics, you're going to have your own theory come back and slap you in the face and tell you things that you that you might not like. Einstein did not like black holes. And I think that he was unhappy with the idea that, that space-time ceased to have operational meaning at 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. My view is that's what we want from a theory. I love a theory that tells you precisely at like at 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, I stop and you need something new. You need a new tool. So in our theory of conscious agents, so we have a theory of, of consciousness. It's a mathematically precise theory. And those who are interested, if you just Google objects of consciousness, that's the title of our paper and my name, Objects of Consciousness and Hoffman, you'll find the paper. It's, it's, uh, it's free online, so you, no problem to get it. So that's a mathematical theory of consciousness. It's just, an, I don't view it as the final theory of everything. As I said, it's just a next baby step in science. That's my view of the theory. So here's our next baby step but it's mathematically precise. And so the question is, does it tell me it's precise limits? And it does. And that's what one thing that I love about the theory. So one theorem of the theory in its current formulation is that anytime you have multiple agents, multiple conscious agents, that, that collection, even if they're not interacting, that collection satisfies the definition of a conscious agent. So it's a conscious agent. That's just a theorem. And what that theorem entails ultimately is that there is one conscious agent because all of the agents that you could possibly have are combined and they create a single new agent. So there is ultimately one, one agent. But here's the problem, and here's the limit of our theory. Suppose I start with a countable infinity of conscious agents. So agent one, two, three, four, all the way up to infinity. Well, so I have this, this countable infinity of agents, left zero, the infinity. But now our theorem says that every possible combination of agents, so agent one and two, one plus two, that's an agent, one plus, so it's the power set. So there's a, a power set of new agents. Well, we know that the power set has cardinality ALF1. It's a new bigger infinity. So now let's look at those agents and we take all their combinations. Well, that's a new power set, that's ALF2. So we're gonna have to go to get to a description of the one ultimate conscious agent that's the, and the, it's a theorem of our theory that there is one conscious agent. 
We're going to, but to get to it, to actually describe it, we're going to have to climb up all of Cantor's hierarchy. Now, there's an infinite number of steps in Cantor's hierarchy, which means we cannot get there. So in, in 20,000 years, if we're still using this framework, and we've gotten to level 5 billion of Cantor's hierarchy, it's time to break out the champagne. We just we went through 500 billion levels. Uh, you know, we're at A-Lev 500 billion, and we learned a lot at every level. So we learned something new about consciousness every time we transcended and went to a new level. Time to break out the champagne. How much further do we have to go? Infinity. You're, you're not even, you're, you're not, literally, you're not any closer than when you started, and yet you learned a lot. And so what I love about this theory is it says there is the one conscious agent, and number two, using this theory, you'll never be able to describe it. But number three, you'll know precisely how far you've gotten and precisely how infinitely far you have to go at every step of the theory. So the theory itself predicts its own failure to, to actually describe an entity that it's a theorem exists from the theory. So that for me, that's one thing I love about the theory is that it tells me immediately how far I've gotten. And right now we're just at ALF zero. <laughs> we haven't even gotten to ALF one yet. <laughs> So we have a long way to go. John, do you have any comments quickly? Yeah. Um, I, um, I want to I know more about what is meant by conscious agent and what is meant by um, well, the rejection of, of, of space-time. Uh, but before I do that, um, I, I mean, the arguments aren't identical, but they converge. I mean, these are very, in that sense, convergent with Neoplatonic arguments that the one lies beyond all possible conceptualization uh and uh because um if because if you try to understand it you have to understand it in terms of its structure or its cause and therefore you haven't actually achieved um the 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 one because you still would then have to get some system of intelligibility that explains the relationship between the structures and the and so you are always you always are pointing towards an ultimate reality um, that uh, can't ever be grasped. Uh, uh, the source of intelligibility the, the arguments go like the source of intelligibility can't itself be intelligible. Um, and what was interesting is. It sounded to me, Donald, and maybe I'm getting it wrong. It sounded to me like you got this sort of fractal oneing going all the way up, uh, which means even your notion of the one is in some sense inadequate and it points beyond itself. And then the whole trajectory of all these ones points towards a one that is never, that is never graspable. That's what I heard you saying. And that, that sounds like Neoplatonism, uh, through to me, um, profoundly. The part about the conscious agents I want to talk to you more about, but the structure of, sort of, uh, you know, I, I should do it this way, the fractal of wanting like this or something. I don't know what what gesture to make with my hands, which is quite adequate, but that that is something disclosed when you reflect deeply upon intelligibility. Um, it sounds, and by the way, Donald, I hope you know that I mean this as a compliment, not an insult. I consider myself a post-nominalist Neoplatonist. So hearing what sounds like a very Neoplatonic structure to reality, that really resonated with me. Now, I wonder what you would say, though, and maybe this goes to what you mean by consciousness. So Plotinus argues that the top thing, right, consciousness is, he takes intentionality to be a feature of consciousness, and that therefore consciousness always implies a duality, and that you need a one beyond that duality to explain 
explain the duality and that therefore you pass beyond consciousness and thought you pass both beyond consciousness and and, and intelligence when you get to the when you get to the one uh, below it he has you know you probably know this the new the noose which is like all of these ones all of the forms that and they're they're like this they're infinitely mirroring each other like indra's net um so i wonder i wonder what you think about that kind of argument but i know that's an unfair question to just ask first because it depends on you know what you're meaning by conscious and what you're meaning by agent right so um and uh, by the way i'll describe a bit of course the paper objects of consciousness has the math all, all laid out in, in a sure problem. but yeah. but intuitively right when you're trying to boot up a theory you want the the smallest set of assumptions that you can possibly use that would boot up a, a general theory and there's dozens and dozens of things you could think about it you want a theory of consciousness to deal with you know the self is there a self you know, learning memory problem solving intelligence and, and there's a bunch of things qualia possibility of free will there's tons and tons of things so but we can't throw in the kitchen sink so what we do is we try to find the minimal aspects of consciousness that we will take as the miracles as the as the fundamental assumptions of our theory so we took two we took that there are conscious experiences and that conscious experiences probabilistically affect the other conscious experiences occurring those are the, the and I, I just read in the last few weeks, looking at the modology, it turns out Leibniz says the same thing. He, he beat us by 300 years by saying that those were the two, if he was going to boot up a theory of consciousness, he would use those two things, experiences and probabilistic relationships among them. So so what we do is we we take that idea that, that Leibniz beat me at uh, 300 years ago, and we turn it into mathematics. I say a conscious agent basically is a probability space of possible experiences. So I mean, these, this it could be a, an infinite probability space. So these are all the possible experiences of this conscious agent. So I write down a probability space, and and then I use Markovian kernels, which is you know, a very very general formulation of some probabilistic relationships. So basically, we have what we call perception, decision, and action kernels, but they're all Markovian kernels, and you can take their composition and just have one Markovian kernel if you want. But we have then a, basically a social network of these probability spaces related by Markovian kernels. So it's a big social network and and it's a Markovian dynamics. And, and so when you look at that dynamics, um, it's, you know, it, that's what we mean by a conscious agent. And it is a theorem of, of that, that when you have two conscious agents, um, you can take just their tensor product and you will get a tensor product of spaces and kernels and so forth. And, and you get it, it, it satisfies the definition of a conscious agent. But But in terms of, consciousness and some a deep thing about consciousness and, and experience. I realized after we wrote it down that I was forced by the mathematics to write down a probability space on which the experiences took place. So it's just sitting there. It's like a platonic structure just sitting there. What does that mean? So I once later look back and say, okay, well, what does that mean about consciousness? Well, that's clearly consciousness prior to experience. So that is, that's, we're forced to write down in our mathematics, a structure that corresponds to a being without any particular experience that is happening. So there is, but then the Markovian dynamics is really modeling the play of forms of experiences that pop up and down on this fundamental um, being that is timeless, 
and uh, requires no experience. It is the field of potential for all experiences. So I realized later on that that mathematics nicely um, intertwines with interpretations that we see from various spiritual traditions. But I was, I, I didn't try to, to you know, model the spiritual traditions. I was forced by mathematics. You can't talk about probability until you write down the probability space. You just can't do it. And so, so you're forced to, to do this. And I realized, well, uh, the natural interpretation of that is being prior to experience. And then Markovian dynamics is the full set of experiences. And now in the, the, the issue about mapping to space-time and, and space-time is doomed. What's going on there? Um, now I'm just going to tell you what the physicists are saying. They will say the reason why space-time is doomed is this. If you try to make more and more precise measurements at smaller and smaller scales of space, like the position of this electron or whatever it might be, you need to use radiation, say light, with smaller and smaller wavelengths. That's fine. Quantum theory says that as you use smaller and smaller wavelengths, you're going to have more and more, you're using more and more energy. You're concentrating energy into a smaller and smaller space. E equals H nu is the, is the formula. And that's, and in a world without gravity, that's fine. You, as long as you can get more and more energy, you bigger and bigger power station, you can resolve smaller and smaller and smaller things. No problem. So space, space and time are fine. Gravity messes everything up. It's, it's the, you know, it, it crashes the party. Because what happens is Einstein tells us that energy and mass are the same thing. So effectively, as you're making finer and finer measurements, you're, you're concentrating more and more mass into a smaller region. So you're getting higher mass density. And then gravity says at some point when you get, the, when the mass density reaches a certain threshold, space time collapses into a black hole and the very object that you're trying to measure disappears. And that happens at 10 to the minus 33 centimeters and then 10 to the minus 43 seconds, which is the amount of time it takes to move 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. And so, so what happened, and, and so, it, and it's not like that there are pixels of space time. So a wrong concept is, oh, say, oh well, space time is still fundamental, but there are pixels at that, that, that level. No, no, no. It, it means that space time ceases to be coherent. It has no operational meaning at that level. So it, it just, it's gone. It's, it, it's doomed. And, Another argument that the physicist will give that's even deeper than the one I just gave is to say that in quantum theory, the measuring device itself is a physical device. Mm -hmm. Therefore, mm -hmm. it's, it's subject to quantum uncertainty. Yep. Yes, yes. And to get more and more precise measurements, you need to add more and more degrees of freedom to the device, which means it's getting more and more massive. Yep. If you're in the lab, it's, you know, you're, you've got this device in your lab. At some point, it's going to be, you know, as you get more and more precise, the whole the mass is going to be so great that the whole lab collapses into a black hole. And again, you destroy the, um, the experiment. So, so there's no operational meaning to space-time. And when the physicists then say, okay, space-time has been good. It's been really a, a great framework for centuries, or, you know, space and time, and then in the last century, space-time. But it's time to find something new. And, and they're, the young physicists are moving beyond, and they found these new structures, the amplitudehedron, and then also the uh, decorated permutations. And these structures um, are beyond space-time and they're beyond quantum theory. And when I say they're beyond quantum theory, the amplitudehedron has no Hilbert spaces, but its phase structure encodes both locality and unitarity, the properties of space-time and quantum theory. So, so this is a structure that could have trillions or more dimensions, not just four or 11. It has trillions of dimensions. Uh, it doesn't care about space. 
It doesn't care about time and it doesn't care about quantum theory. It, it, it couldn't care less about them. But its volumes actually are the scattering amplitudes. If you want the two gluons in, four gluons out, the, the amplitudehedron associated to it, its volume is the scattering amplitude and its phase structure encodes locality and unitarity. And so, so this is, this is a structure beyond space time. And, and, and here's the beautiful thing. When you try to compute these scattering amplitudes, like two gluons hitting each other, four gluons go spraying up. If you do it in space time, um, well, to do it in space time, you have to enforce things, the properties of space and time. Things, you know, have locality and unitarity. And so we have to you know, use what are called Feynman diagrams to talk about all these virtual particles that, that, that we need in, in space time to actually do this math. It turns out two gluons to four gluons, hundreds of pages of algebra, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of terms to do one event, just one event. When you go outside of space time with the amplitudehedron, that computation reduces to yeah, three terms that you can compute by hand. So hundreds of pages reduced to three terms. So, and then all, all of a sudden the physicists say, by the way, we also, when we let go of space time, we see these new symmetries, like something called the infinite Yangian symmetry. And the infinite Yangian symmetry is true of the scattering data and you cannot see it in space time. So space time is doomed. Space time forces you to do all this nasty, nasty computation that's, that's unnecessary. The computations are actually simple and it hides the symmetries that are really true of the data. So, so space time has three strikes against it. It proves its own you know, limits. It, it, it makes the math unnecessarily complicated and it hides the, the genuine symmetries that are there. So that's why um, the physicists are moving with both feet beyond space time and they're finding this wonderful stuff. And, and that's why I, as a, as a, you know, a theorist trying to get a theory of consciousness that can lead to testable results, which are only in space time, right? The only place where we can get measurable experiments is in space time. That's where we get our measurements. So it's no longer that I want a theory of consciousness that's somehow, you know, emergent from things in space time, like brains and so forth. That, that I mean, space time is doomed. So that whole, that can't work. So booting up consciousness from stuff inside space-time, the physicists are telling us that will not work. So I'm not going to try to do that. Consciousness is beyond space-time, and they've given us this interface that we have to plug into. They, they've said, we've gone beyond space-time, and the deepest thing we found is a decorated permutation. And so a few months ago, I was sitting there and saying, okay, that's what the physicists want. They want a decorated permutation. If I give them a decorated permutation, they can actually take me all the way into space-time and give me a scattering amplitude, something I can test, something that you see at the Large Hadron Collider. So can I get from my Markovian dynamics of conscious agents to a decorated permutation? And I looked online just to say, well, surely the mathematicians have done this. You know, for any Markovian kernel, what's the decorated permutation? And I look and there, there's, there wasn't anything. And so I, I work with my, my mathematician colleague, Chaitan, and uh, it didn't take us very long. We, 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 so it's a, it's a new piece of mathematics. We now have a can canonical way of assigning every Markovian kernel a decorated permutation. Also, any arbitrary graph. We can assign arbitrary graphs decorated permutations. And what this does is it now, the physicists have pushed beyond space-time to decorated permutations, but it's just a platonic solid sitting there. It's, it's motionless. It's just sitting there. 
we now offer a dynamics, a Markovian dynamics that projects. So the dynamics is much more complicated. So if we have, for example, um, 50 interacting conscious agents, the structure that we get, the Markovian structure we get is a Markov polytope with 50 to the 50th power. Uh, that's probably more than the number of atoms in the universe. That's the number of vertices in this polytope that's describing just 50 conscious agents interacting. So this is an incredibly complicated structure, very, very rich dynamical structure that projects down that 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 structure, which has, you know, more vertices than all the atoms in the, the, the measurable universe projects down into a decorated permutation, which is only 50 numbers. And that then gives rise to the scattering. So you can see that the, the conscious thing is really complicated. It's a really complicated dynamic. We're collapsing it down to something trivial when we get to decorated permutations, and then even more trivial when we get into space time. So, so consciousness is fundamental, but we have this map all the way from consciousness into space time. And so now, so we're, we're submitting a paper this week. So the, the, we finished writing the paper on this, which is why I'm pretty excited about it. We'll submit it um, probably by you know just before Thanksgiving, uh, you know Wednesday. But we're now we have this pontoon bridge from consciousness into space time, and now what we're doing is trying to do you know move all the heavy equipment across. So what what is you know what what aspect of conscious agent dynamics corresponds to energy and momentum, or to wavelengths, or to spin, or to helicity, and 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 so forth. We, we, in, in our paper, we start to propose specific um, correspondences between features of consciousness and its dynamics in, in, our, in our model and specific things that you can measure in space-time. Because my goal is to show that you know, space-time is doomed, yes, um, but there is this dynamics of consciousness beyond space-time, and we can actually predict specific scattering amplitudes and actually show you where spin, momentum, you know, helicity, and all these variables come from. and and I think we can even explain why supersymmetry is false. I think that in our dynamical model, we can actually show why, um, you know, for certain models, you, you um, something called n equals four uh, supersymmetric theories. Um, the decorated permutation gives you everything there is to say about the scattering amplitude, everything. But if you don't have supersymmetry, you have to bring in spin and, and mass, for example. And we can explain from our dynamics of conscious agents why that is the case, that it turns out that the different versions of spin are asymmetric and you can't see it using the standard physics models. But when you go through the Markovian model, you actually see that spin, the, the various kinds of spins have subtle differences so that they're not perfectly symmetric and that then blows out supersymmetry. So, so we're hoping not just to um, model what the physicists already know, but but to have the model actually you know go go well beyond right these these markov polytopes uh, have a, a richness of structure and in our paper we're only going to go after m m3 the three agent interaction which has 27 so it's and, and it turned out my my colleague uh, chaitan who's the mathematician um worked very very hard and as a beautiful beautiful structure very very complicated for just three agents interacting and it grows exponentially with five agents, there's 3,000 nodes, 3,000 more than 3,000 vertices. It just grows exponentially, and the and the dynamics is very very rich. So, so that's a little bit about why space time is doomed and why I think consciousness is is more fundamental.
and why I'm sort of excited about it. <laughs> I have some thoughts. I'd like to respond to some of the technical aspects quickly, if you don't mind. So you mentioned that the amplitude hedron doesn't live in a Hilbert space, but it's unitary and it doesn't presume space-time, but it's local. So how the heck do you have unitarity without a Hilbert space? Uh, well, so so it, it's, the structure itself is not unitary and local. It's just, just, it's just a, um, a geometric structure, like, like a polytope, but not exactly a polytope. But it, it turns out that you can read off from the, the sort of like the lattice of like facets and edges and faces and, and vertices, from, the, from that arrangement, it turns out the physicists can actually show that that corresponds to what looks in space-time like unitarity and locality. Have you heard of the Coleman-Mandula theorem? Uh, maybe, but not, I don't remember the name. So. Sure, so it's a no-go theorem about internal symmetries. Colloquially, they can't be combined in anything but a trivial manner. So if you have a Poincaré group, then internal symmetries have to be a direct product of them plus the Poincaré group for whatever reason. This is one of the reasons why supersymmetry either must exist or conformal symmetry must exist or you need to be in a lower dimensional space. And so I'm not a fan of supersymmetry, but I'm not a fan of any particular theory. So I'm agnostic when it comes to many of these physical theories, which is why I have a small bone to pick when you say the physicists sure. want a, a decorated permutation. I wouldn't say the physicist, I would say some physicist. So anyway, then I would be curious, like, well, how do you overcome the Coleman-Medulla theorem if you're doing away with supersymmetry? But you can look into that at some point, and then also I'd like to take a look at that article if you can send it to me prior. I can send you both the article, which is almost complete. Yeah, yeah. I'll look at the Coleman-Medulla theory. Does that theorem apply only to Poincaré spaces or a general theory about geometric objects in general? It's any theory that has an S-matrix. See, if it only applies to Poincaré group, then it's not a problem, right? It's, uh, because we're not we're not stuck in space time. We're not. What we have to do is show that the Poincaré group comes out as a as a trivial projection of a much deeper and richer structure. I mean, our amplitude hedra with with um, you know say a thousand agents um, is going to be a, a, a polytope with a thousand to the thousandth power vertices. This is this is a, <laughs> this is this is not the Poincaré group. This is something truly mind-boggling. This is a, a very, very interesting uh, polytopal structure. It, it, it includes, by the way, the Birkhoff polytope is a sub-polytope within it. So within the, so the Birkhoff polytope is a very famous polytope of all the, um, it, it, all, all of its vertices are permutation matrices, zeros and ones only in, in the matrices. And, and it's very, very, but that, that is a, a, a sub-polytope of this Markov polytope. Um, I have to stop you because Don, me and you have to have a solo podcast about this as a part two okay. to our previous one sure. about the details. Because right now, I know John is, is your, your eyes may be glazing over. So you were champing at the bit. Continue, please. Uh, me? Is yes, it, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, I, um, I think I followed a large part of that, although I don't know if I have the physics background to uh, say I, I grasped all of it adequately. Um, and, I, and I don't want to say anything out of ignorance. So uh, I'll try and first of all, just ask some questions. Are the are the are some of the physicists, Kurt's point, are they yeah. concluding that space time is not real or that it's emergent from this more fundamental ontology? Like those are two different claims. Um Right to claim that everything above a fundamental level is not real is a kind of reductionism that I've already argued is I find very problematic. Um, I could 
and I wasn't clear which one you're saying, space-time is doomed as a fundamental or space-time is doomed as an ent- as an entity. Those aren't those aren't the same claims. Uh, so uh, what are what are what are they saying? Yeah, my, my take on it is that, um, and I I think that you know we could talk to the physicists like Niemeyer, Kahneman, and so forth. But my my take is that when he says space-time is doomed, he's saying that it's not fundamental. Um, right. I, 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 he may not want to worry about deeper existential notions. He, he, he's saying if you're a physicist and you and, and, and that was the framework in which you're doing all your work, that's no longer the framework. You've got to go. You have to show that there's a deeper framework and that the um, that space time comes out as a projection of a much richer and, and deeper framework. Now, whether he says that that means the space time is not real. I, I, I don't know if you'd even be interested in that question. I'm not. I'm just not sure. Um, right. Because uh, for me, I mean, the idea that space-time might be projected uh, from something that is not space-timey, I mean, that's, you know, and this is not dismissive. That's a perennial idea. I mean, it's, and you mentioned it, it's a, it's a classic platonic idea uh, that, and, that, you know, that even to make inferences that generalize, we need non-spatial temporal relations, we need eternal relations. I mean, Berman makes this argument. This is why nominalism is doomed. So, uh, and pardon me, because uh, it sounds like these things, you're describing them geometrically. So, given that given that geometric figures are spatial, um, does that mean that there's some sense in which the language is ultimately conceived as being imaginal or metaphorical about this? Because, you know, you're, you're talking about faces and you're using space-time language, and and, I, and I, Don, I'm not trying to like pin you down like a jujitsu move, but I, I'm wanting to get people's attitude here. What, given that they're using you know geometry uh, as a fundamental thing, um, you know, and Plato ran into a similar kind of thing. Uh, that's why I'm asking this question. Uh, what is it that what what, what do they take their theoretical representations to be? Right. So. Space-time itself is just another piece of geometry, right? It's, it's yeah, yeah. So, so you have the the mathematics of polytopes or or, or geometries more more generally, and and space-time and the Poincaré group, and, you know, symmetries on space-time and so forth is is just one out of countless different kinds of geometries. Most of us, our imaginations are so tied to space-time, it's hard for us to think out uh, outside of it. But the you know the amplitude for example, itself it could have trillions of dimensions. Um, so it's 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 so these are geometric objects. They're not objects in a physical sense of some object in space time. They're mathematical objects, um, and in the same sense that physicists view space time itself as being described by a mathematical object, say you know the symmetries of the Poincaré group and so forth. So so it's that sense that that, that these are geometric objects. But I've had this question before because people have asked me. You know, I gave a talk at Stanford a few weeks ago on this and. Someone said, "Well, so where are these objects? Are, are they like at the Planck scale, or are they stuck inside mm-hmm. space-time somewhere? Where where are they? Because we all, we if if there's a geometric object, we think it has to be somewhere in space, and 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 this is the leap leap you have to make. No, no, space-time itself is just one fairly trivial geometric object, um, and these objects are be, you know beyond they transcend space-time, um, and they project it to space-time." My, my own view is that you know space-time is, from an evolutionary point of view, and I, you know, I'd love to have a chance to talk about evolution with with John for in, in a minute. Yeah. But from an evolutionary view, I, I think that that's, that space-time is just a virtual reality headset 
that we've evolved. And it's not a very good one. We, 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 we have a cheap model. It, it only has four, maybe 11 dimensions on the super, and it, it, it stops at 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. It's very shallow. If it was 10 to the minus 33 trillion centimeters, I might be impressed, but 10 to the minus 33. So I feel like we got cheated. We, we got a really cheap um, user interface and it, it, it's shallow. And, uh, and, and I can't even imagine, uh, you know, a five dimensional object. And for a lot of work I want to do, I, I would be very, very helpful to imagine a five dimensional object. And my, my little interface doesn't let me do that. So I have to actually then painfully scratch down mathematics and you know, Chaitan to do this little thing. He, he spent weeks and weeks, you know, because just because we can't visualize, you know, this this Markov polytope of three agents, we, we can't visualize, we can't see a structure. We have to then painfully like feeling the different parts of the elephant. You know, here's the tail, here's the leg and put together what this polytope is and prove what it is. So so, you know. Space and time isn't the fundamental reality. It's a, it's a, a, a fairly low level and cheap and shallow interface that, that we're stuck with. And uh, <laughs> I hope to transcend it. <laughs> so so what what is it you think about us that gives us access, epistemic access to a non-phenomenological reality? I'm like... Right, and, and this then gets to the question about evolution and natural selection too, and, and so forth. So, um, because I've argued on on evolutionary grounds that uh, we've been shaped not just that you know our perceptions of space and time are are fundamentally um, not correct, right? That there is it's not the truth; it's just a user interface, and and that's what the physicists, at least these physicists, are now saying as well. Space and time is not the the fundamental reality; it's there's something much deeper. So so I argue for that. Um, in the following way, evolution by natural selection is a is a precise mathematical theory. We have evolutionary game theory, evolutionary graph theory, and so forth. So, it's a mathematical model, and we can ask clean technical questions with that theory. We can ask the question, for example, um, what is the probability, assuming evolution by natural selection, assuming evolutionary game theory, what is the probability that any sensory system would be shaped by natural selection to perceive any true structures of objective reality? Turns out that's a clean technical question, not a hand wave. You can actually ask that question using evolutionary game theory. And when you ask that question, it, it turns out it's a theorem of the theory. And in, in the paper that we have on this is called Fact, Fiction, and Fitness. Um, and it was published a couple of years ago. So if you just Google my name and Fact, Fiction, and Fitness, the paper is free. You can, you can read the proof. The, 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 it, it, the, the probability is precisely zero. And we prove it for three or four specific structures. But when you look at it, you see the reason why, and it's, it's going to be true for any structure, the probability is zero that any structure that you might say the world, the objective reality might have, the probability is zero that any fitness payoff function will actually preserve the, the information of that structure, will be a homomorphism of that structure. So the probability that, that the payoff function that is shaping the evolution of a sensory system actually has any information about the structure of the world is precisely zero. So that, that payoff function couldn't, couldn't shape the sensory system to see that structure in the world. Now, so that's just a theorem of evolution by natural selection. Now, do I believe evolution by natural selection? I don't believe any theory. I don't believe my own theories. I think belief is the wrong attitude to have towards scientific theories. So I don't believe evolution by natural selection. What I do believe is it's the best story we have so far. And so that's why I took it seriously with my team and we proved this theorem. But I'm happy to now find a deeper theory. 
and then show that evolution by natural selection uh, arises as a trivial projection. And, and so, and it turns out, I think we might be able to do that. So the theory of Markov chains that we're using for conscious agents, that dynamics does not need to have increasing entropy. You can write down, it's easy to write down dynamics of conscious agents in which the entropy doesn't increase and, and therefore there's no entropic arrow of time. But it's a trivial theorem that if you take this dynamics, which has no arrow of time and project it onto a dynamics, uh, you know, projection dynamics via say conditional probability, it's a theorem that when you do that, the projected dynamics will have increasing entropy. It will have an arrow of time. So all of a sudden, and by the way, that arrow of time is not an insight about the original dynamics. It's not an insight. It's an artifact of the information loss due to projection. So what I would like to show is that um, evolution by natural selection, all the limited resources, time is the fundamental limited resource. That is just an artifact of projection. I want to show that all of the appearance of limited resources is an artifact of projection. The appearance of competition, fighting for limited resources, nature, red, and tr truth and claw, tooth and claw, is perhaps an artifact of a projection of a deeper dynamics of consciousness in which there is no competition, um, there are no limited resources, and there is no arrow of time. If we can prove that, then this is how science moves. We would then take the next baby step beyond evolution by natural selection. So, so here's the logic. I use, because we are where we are, I have to use the tools of evolution by natural selection to see its limits. So I use them. And I find out, it says to me very, very clearly, space and time and physical objects are not the truth. I cannot tell you what the truth is, but I can tell you this. Space and time and objects are not the truth. That's a theorem of that theory. Now I'm making the next leap. I'm saying, okay, I'm going to propose the theory of consciousness beyond space and time and in which there is no arrow of time. But now I want to show is that when I project that by conditional probability, I, in special cases, I get evolution by natural selection as a trivial projection of that. And that's how science progresses. So that's how I can use the tools of evolution by natural selection to say that things like genes, and organisms and DNA uh, are not fundamental without contradicting myself, right? That's, that's the logic that allows me to use the theory to point to its own limits and then transcend the theory, right? To have a theory that in which there is no arrow of time whose projection leads to uh, evolution natural selection or a generalization of it. So, so that's that, that, that logic that allows me to uh, look like I'm contradicting myself I'm using evolution to prove evolution doesn't work. You're shooting yourself in the foot. No, that's the way science pulls itself up by the bootstraps. Each theory shows you its limits. If it's a good theory, if it's not a good theory, it doesn't show you its limits. If it's a good theory, it shows you its limits. You transcend the limits and then you get your new theory to project down. But now your question, John, which is how, what, what, what allows me to do all of this? What, what, what is the deeper, my feeling is, that I, the, the, the entity that's doing all the science is not a physical object, it's not a brain, it's not neurons, 
it is this unlimited intelligence. There is, so I am not an object in space and time. I am not neurons. I am not any of that. I am that which comes up with theories about space and time, which comes up with theories about neurons. I am that which can evaluate those theories and find their limits and then transcend them and get a new theory. That's what I am. I am that unlimited intelligence. And that unlimited intelligence does transcend any theory. So that's the framework in which I'm thinking about it. Okay. Uh, so let me ask you a couple of questions then. That was very helpful. Um, so given that you agree that all formal systems are, are either inconsistent or incomplete, you can't place an ultimate, uh, I don't know what to call it, faith in even a mathematical model uh, because the degree to which it has to limit and be incomplete in order to avoid computational intractability and all kinds of other issues um, is the degree to which it's falling prey to the very arguments you're making. Is that not the case? Uh, that's right. So that's why there's no theory of everything. Exactly. But what I'm asking is why why the, pref the special privileging, and I'm asking this question honestly because I do the same thing, right. so I'm asking it of myself as well. Why the special, you know, this is the, the question posed to Kant, right? Why the special privileging of mathematical reasoning as that which gives you access to reality? Uh, very, very good. Uh, I'll answer it at two, two levels. One is at the evolutionary theorem level. So because people have said, well, if you use evolution to show that uh, we don't know the truth, then you've, you've, you've shown that uh, reason is, is nonsense, and therefore you've shot yourself in the foot. You know, mm -hmm. Alvin Plantinga, for example, a Christian philosopher, has tried to take that argument to say that evolution shows that all of our cognitive capacities um, are, are not reliable, and therefore, our theory building capacity is not reliable, and therefore, the theory of evolution is not reliable, and so it shows. Yeah, that's. Itself. I was thinking of Plantinga, and I was thinking of Fodor's response because Plantinga is in this really weird place that he has to say most of our beliefs are false, yet there's some property of the false beliefs that makes them adaptive or makes them functional. And what would be that other than truth? You need a. You need to propose something other than truth to say it's false, but highly functional and that's the that's the missing property p of the propositions that Fodor basically launches against Plantinga he says well tell me what it is that the false beliefs have because many of my false beliefs will kill me readily right so it can't right there has to be some property that distinguishes false beliefs that are non-adaptive from false beliefs that are adaptive and what is that property um that's that that's the kind of question I'm trying to get at Right, right. So I'll give two answers on it. One, I think if, if I were Plantinga, what I would try to say is, look, I, I never believed in the theory of evolution to begin with. I'm just trying to use the tools of evolution to show that it's nonsense. So so I'm not subject to that kind of. So if I were Plantinga, I would make that move. Right. I, I, I never said that evolution is true. And, and I just wanted to use it to show that it shoots itself on the foot. <laughs> so so that's that's how I, I would make that move. But um Beyond that, again, I don't think that we can ever, any language, so, so there are limits of mathematics. I will say within the theory of evolution, so I'm going to just go back to the theory of evolution itself. Our theorem that says that evolution entails that none of our per percepts are veridical, it turns out that that theorem is only for percepts, you know, it's not for logic and reason. Right. And 
on evolutionary grounds, you could actually have uh, against Plantinga now um, arguments for why you should have some facility with logic and reason. For example, an organism that uh, can uh, notice that two bites of an apple give you more fitness payoffs than one bite of an apple is better off. No, that's about not about truth, about objective, it's about fitness payoffs, something that's, you know, not about the nature of objective reality. So, so there would be some selection pressures, you could argue, for some modest facility with mathematics because you need to reason about fitness payoffs. And every once in a while, the genes will come together and you'll get a David Hilbert or von Neumann right. and you get a mathematical genius. Now, so, so you could use that kind of logic against Plantinga, but, but you can see that I don't, I don't even want to go there because I'm saying that evolution by itself, I, I also just use the tools of evolution because it's the, our current best theory, but I want to completely transcend the theory with something else that, that projects down to evolution. But, but ultimately, any word or concept that we use, and including the most precise ones in mathematics, but I, I think that it's, it's not just mathematics, it's any concept that we use, I think will always, as the spiritual traditions say, always just be a pointer and not the thing. The, the finger that Buzza say the finger that pointing to the moon is not the moon. And that will be true of mathematics. It'll be true of, of, of non-mathematical non concepts. So the bigger question for me is, if I am and you are this unlimited intelligence that transcends concepts, why does that unlimited intelligence engage in using concepts? For me, that's the big question. This, but this is the, well, first of all, um, you're in good company. This is an ancient problem. <laughs> this is why, this is why does the one become many? Yes. Right. Right. This is, this is why does the one become many? And how could the one become many if the one is one? Um, right. And you're in that, in, in that deep problem. So I don't want to, I don't want to saddle you with that and say you have to solve that because, <laughs> right, right, because that's unfair. Um, but what, what I'm trying to get at is really, I'm trying to get clear of your model. So we have some epistemic access, uh, fallible as it is, but that's not, that's not, I'm not claiming infallibility. I'm hearing though that there's still preferential. The conceptual mm -hmm. access gives us prefer, our conceptual abilities give us preferential access to reality over our perceptual abilities. I thought I heard you say something like that. So if I have to choose between a percept and a conceptual analysis, I should give priority to the conceptual analysis. Or did I mishear you? Oh, uh, well, it's close. What I said is within the logical framework of evolutionary theory, that's the case. Right. I'm not saying that I believe, I'm just saying that using, so when Plantinga says, let's assume for sake of argument, evolution of natural selection, then you'll get that all cognitive capacities are, are not reliable. And I'm just saying, no, no, you don't. You, you get that perceptual capacities are not reliable, but you do not get that mathematical con so I'm just, so that's just an argument about the specifics of evolution. But, but I think I take your question as a broader one than that. Yeah. And, yes, and, yes. Right. So, so, so I want to distinguish my argument on evolution from the broader question. Evolution, if you just take, if you ask what evolution says, it, it says, it says clearly our perceptions are not true. It, it, it is, doesn't say clearly that our logic and math are not true. It doesn't say that clearly at all. Okay. But, but I take it that from this broader point of view, evolution by natural selection aside, um, and now going beyond any, you know, even my own conscious agent mathematics framework, my, my own view is that here I am talking using concepts, 
And I know that every concept that I'm speaking right now and every, every mathematical thought that I'm having is not it. And it's not even scratching the surface of, of the reality. All I can do is point to that fact. And, and yet I do find myself, because I'm talking with you and also talking to myself and trying to understand things, sort of forced to take this unlimited intelligence and compress it down to this almost zero bandwidth thing that we call thought and logic and concepts. Um, and which that points to, again, this, this infinite, so it's an infinite to one or infinite to small thing and back out to the infinite. And so the, the question, you know, it comes down to, you know, why is there something rather than just presence without any content? Why, why is there content? There's that. And um, that goes back to a question about um, what experience means in your model. Right, um, right. Because what does experience mean, um, given the way, the way you're talking? Um, but I want to, I want to, I want to slow down and, and, and zero in on this. Um, so I, I worry, and I, I and I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I must be wrong. I worry that there's an implicit thing that unless you have all knowledge, you have no knowledge, or unless you have all truth, you have no truth here the, the the idea like i agree with you like and i've made this argument multiple times i made it to you know to kurt that you know the vast amount of information we have to subtend it we that's what relevance realization is etc i couldn't solve any of my problems if i had to try and trace out all the probabilistic relationships to all the other entities in the universe blah 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 i won't repeat all of those arguments i agree with that but i mean i worry about things like mino's paradox and sorites argument right which says that no no there has to be partial knowledge that nevertheless grasps the truth. So why couldn't somebody say to you, yeah, my perceptual knowledge is very partial, but that doesn't equate logically with it being false. It's just partial because partial truth has to be a thing or you're caught in Mino's paradox, you're caught in Sorites arguments, and then you end up with absolute skepticism. And I can tell you're not an absolute skeptic, so I'm not going to foist that on you. Do you okay. But do you see the point I'm making? Partial yeah. knowledge doesn't mean false just because it's partial. That that. There has to be something more. Did that make sense as, as a point? Oh, absolutely. And I, and I think that partial knowledge is, is a perfectly good concept. The, 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 but, but, but that knowledge is a, it, it deals with concepts or math or both. <clears throat> yeah. And, and so the, the, the question is, why would the one plunge itself into partial knowledge? So, so what, here's one view of what we are. There, there is the one consciousness and it's putting on is putting itself into different VR avatars. There's a, a, a John Verveke avatar, there's a Don Hoffman, but, and there's also a Kurt and so forth. These are all just avatars. Really, there's only one of us, and it's the one looking at itself through different headsets. And, and as I said, I think this is a cheap headset that it's using. This is only four-dimensional. It, it, it poops out at 10 to the minus 33. It's, so this is the one looking at itself through a fairly cheap, low-grade headset. I'm sure it uses much higher ones as well. I mean, there, there are countless other headsets that it uses, presumably, to, to look at itself and explore. So, so somehow the one is, and, and the way we experience it, by the way, is, I mean, most of us don't think of ourselves as the one. We think of ourselves as, as this, we identify with the avatar in the, in the VR. I am the avatar. That's what I am. 
-hmm. And it's a very painful process of waking up and realizing, oh, no, I'm not the avatar. I'm the consciousness in which the avatar exists. I create the avatar. I thought I was the avatar. I, I am something deeper that creates that avatar. And it's, you know, so if that's what consciousness is doing, the, the issue is why does consciousness plunge itself into the ignorance? Why does it take a perspective, put on a headset? I asked a, a friend of mine, uh, Perry Passaro, this question. He said, you know, maybe it has to do with love, right? How, how can you love if there's only one of you? So what you do is you, you put on, you, you, you disunify yourself, you put on a bunch of headsets, and now I can learn how to, to love John and Kurt and so forth. I can learn how to be courteous and, and treat them properly and so forth. And, and in so doing, that's what, so in other words, if the one is love, it, it's in some sense in the meaning of love to diversify, to, to have the chance to learn to love in practice. I, I'm not saying that that's right, but it's the kind of deep, kind of question that you have to ask and, and kind of deep conceptual answer you have to try to give to, to answer this kind of question. It sounds very similar to Vedanta and, and, mm. and Neoplatonism. I've, back when you introduced love and love, love both differentiates and integrates. So you get the procession and the return and you get the whole Neoplatonic drama. And then you see cognition working fundamentally that way. Right. Um, but here's where I here's I guess where maybe and I'll speak neoplatonically because I can't yeah. really play in your physicist mathematics framework because you you have me at a tremendous disadvantage. I'm trying my best okay. from where I'm at, um, yeah. and I'm trying to be respectful of the fact that I'm ignorant about some of this. But most neoplatonists would say you ultimately have to say that the emanation and the return are as real as the one, or you get into a really deep, profound. Uh, kind of duality, which undermines this fundamental presupposition of the whole system. So that, you know, the the thing, to use your language, the projection, uh, it, right, and what it projects are as real as what is projected from. Because if there is nothing projected, then what it is projected from wouldn't be intelligible to us, Wouldn't we wouldn't have access to it, right? Because, like, let's even, like, Surely some of my percepts have to be possible because have to be right because I'm reading the gauges on the machines when I'm finding all of what the physicists are finding and I'm taking measurements and I'm correctly hearing somebody when they're saying to me, no, no, look, the implication of this is, right? That's what I mean about I, you don't want to get it into saying all of these things that are going on within science are somehow not real, but you you didn't hold a reductionism. So if you, what I'm saying is if you don't hold a reductionism, which you're nodding to, and, 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 you know, why not, why not say that the, the procession and the return are as real as the one? I mean, this is where many Neoplatonists ended up like Eregina, right? Um, right. I, I, I like that approach and I would love to see it work out in, in the mathematics of, of, our, of our theory actually to sure. I mean as, as we start yeah. to look with bigger and bigger systems and, and look at the at the one system and we look at its dynamics we may find that even though these agents are one in fact when you look at the the one isn't just static it's it's, it's a dynamical system yeah. Yeah. and when you look you'll find that it it, it automatically has "Quote unquote," these parts, these projections that yes. are looking at it from from different perspectives, and so it, it may end up being just, um, it, and it may also be a consequence of again Gödel's incompleteness theorem that that says that that there the end the, the exploration of mathematical structure is completely unbounded. Yes, and that may also force 
the the one to always only be seeing itself through perspectives because any there may be some something very very deep there that forces this as, as well the, the fact that mathematics is unbounded so but but i i feel like now i'm way over my pay grade on this on this well, we, we both are but yeah that, that's fine <laughs> We're, i mean i'm first of all i want to say something um your view is much more sophisticated that i've read it and been presented uh i haven't read any of the papers but i've read people presenting and i've seen it and I think I may have criticized you unfairly, for example, when I was on Lex Friedman. Uh, your view is way more philosophically uh, sophisticated than I was getting. Uh, to be fair to me, many people were presenting your ideas, and I, and I, I was like, what? I don't understand. Um, so but, first of all, I owe, I owe you an apology for that. And I want to make that apology right now publicly. Oh, well, um, well, thank you very much. No problem. <laughs> um, I, you, so um, the, the next thing is it sounds like I got like you. I'm a I'm a fallibus, but I, I I've come to the conclusion, and I don't I don't use certainty. I use plausibility, and I have a formal model of what plausibility means, and I've articulated that. I think the idea that the fundamental grammar of intelligibility and the fundamental grammar of reality have to be in some sense the same, or you cannot you you will be driven into kind of an absolute solipsism and absolute skepticism and it sounds to me like you're saying something similar like that like you're pushing the the machinery of intelligibility to its fundamental grammar sort of in the math and the logic and then you're saying this is somehow disclosing the fundamental structure of reality if i can use that term now is that a fair thing to say about how you're proceeding yeah yeah i would I would say so with this very humbling proviso, and, and that is that, yeah, it is saying something about reality, and what it's saying is it may be measure zero about the reality, right? Probably, yeah. In other words, it's a, it's a probability zero subset of the whole reality, and that, that we will, in, in other words, there's infinite job security in science. <laughs> or at least in right. philosophy. Yeah. And also in philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. It's infinite job security because we will always have only just begun, um, and we will always we'll have essentially a measure zero grasp of the whole. But that measure zero may be real. I mean, it may, it may be genuine, but it'll be measure zero. Right. I, I, I don't think I'm objecting to that, but I also want to. I want there to be some important continuity between whatever judgments I'm making about ultimate reality and judgments when I say this is more real to me than the dream I had last night. I don't want there to be a, like because if you do that, you're you're sneaking in a magic epistemic engine somewhere, right? Right, right? and that that I think we we have we have to we have to we can't allow. It's like no, no, I'm using. I'm using the same epistemic engine. There has to be important continuity uh, between when I make those judgments about, you know, this is more real than the dream I had last night. I'm using that same thing in some way when I'm making the judgments about that, that you're making about the one. And, and I, I, I agree. Okay. I agree. Okay. And maybe okay. part of that coherence is the recognition explicitly that everything that I deal with conceptually is a limited thing. That may be one of the key things to make that coherence yes. is the explicit recognition of the limit of any statement or any theory. Your your epistemic humility, um, I just want to acknowledge it. Um, that's, I mean, 
don't misunderstand me, Donald. I mean, the content of what you're saying um, is is rich and you know rigorous. And I, I, but I think your episode. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Systemic humility was something I had not got uh, uh, right before, but I'm seeing it in our conversation here. Um, I, yeah, you and I resonate, I think, very deeply at that level. I sort of, in, a, in an implicit way, asked Donald the question, and I don't want to try and answer it now because I think it would take us into more, but I'd be happy to talk to him again about this use of the word experience. And 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 and, and, I, and I'm also, what's the relationship between experience and conceptuality or intelligibility? How are they, right? And uh, there's a lot there, I think, uh, that can be um, unpacked. But, um, Absolutely. I, uh, and I'm en- I'm enjoying talking to you, Donald, because like you're very open. I hope you're finding the same with me. You're very absolutely open, you're very responding. You know that you the arguments are going back and forth. Um, but uh, so I'd like to I'd like you uh, explore that um, aspect of your thinking with you, if possible. I would love to do that. I'd love to get back together, all three of us, and 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 jump into that with both feet. That'd be a lot of fun. Absolutely. And I really appreciate uh, John and Kurt the, the open mindedness and. I mean, dogmatism kills things, but open-mindedness really, but a rigorous open-mindedness, right? Where you're hard-nosed, yes. no, no second-rate logic. You want everything to be clean. That's that's how we make progress, and I really appreciate that spirit. Excellent. Excellent. By the way, do you know Smullyan's theorem that we're all either arrogant or inconsistent? <laughs> <laughs> it's actually extremely simple. Your brain is finite. We can agree on that. And even in this... This works even if it's infinite, but it makes it much more simple. So you believe in proposition A, you believe in proposition B, dot, 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 down to proposition N. Not N as in the 14th letter, but you understand. So you either then believe that every one of your beliefs is true, in which case you're arrogant, or you believe that one of these propositions is incorrect, you just don't know which one. Which means that somewhere you have a belief that you believe it to be true and you believe it to be false, which means you're inconsistent. So you either are arrogant or you're inconsistent. I don't know how old this theorem is, uh, but in the 80s, in uh, minimum rationality, he argued, uh, you can't even, given uh, the, the the time it is to move one valence shell 
uh, and the rest of the history of the universe, you can't even calculate if, if 138 propositions are logically consistent with each other um, be because of all possible implications, blah, blah, blah. It just, oh, right? So the finitary predicament, I think, is mm. uh, one of the things I like about the Platonic framework is it is this continual profound, not just talking, but profound realization that we are simultaneously finitude, we are simultaneously finite infinitude, but si capable of transcendence. Um, and if we if we lose the first, we can give into hubris, and if we lose the transcendence, we will give into despair and servitude, and trying to keep the two together at all times. Um, so I look for people that are that in addition to what they're saying there it's how they're saying it mm -hmm. and and i mean this as a compliment donald i was i, I was su surprised don't take this as the wrong way i was surprised to get that sense from you i kept i kept hearing you going between you know this is how we can transcend our experience and then back to we're finite we're fallible and you kept toggling back between them every time you were giving an answer and you were trying to do it and, and as you said not sloppily or, or, right, but but you were trying to do it very carefully, and I appreciated that. Um, um, yeah, this um, this was this was this was really I really enjoyed this. A lot of fun, and I I, I love this discussion. I'd I'd love to have it continue. Absolutely. Thank you all. Thank you all for coming. I appreciate it, and we'll do it again next time. Excellent. What a Great. pleasure. Thank you. What follows is an excerpt of a conversation between John and myself that was partially recorded regarding truth framing and what's salutary. That is, truth isn't an object to be picked, but it's also the act of picking. These arguments from oneness actually are a left brain phenomenon, that we tend to think of that it is spiritual and creative, but it's more from Ian McGilchrist, Ian McGilchrist would say that, that our left brain likes to categorize and see sameness, and that the right brain likes to see distinctness and uniqueness. Because I had this huge solipsistic moment and, and it was extremely frightening and terrifying to me. I'm still recovering from that, I'm like the best I've been. But Ian told me something helpful, which is that, hey, you share an element with God and you share an element with other people. And that that doesn't mean you are. And the fact that you share implies you're different because you can't share with yourself. Well, that's what I want. I want to talk to Donald about what he means by experience. And like, like Leibniz had the problem that the monads are self-enclosed, but yet somehow they have windows, uh, which is um, trying to make this work. But he was very, I mean, like he said, no, you know, but the procession and the return are just as real as the one. And I think right, that's, right, a, right. That, that's an important thing to him for him to acknowledge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I also get that when people say that so-and-so is an illusion. Yeah, but in another sense, it's it's real. But but he admitted that too. When he, when it, like, uh, yeah, yeah, when all the, all the scientific observations have to be real and, and partial knowledge is real, like, like. His his notion of it being illusion is is not that notion. It's not the solipsistic notion. Um, yeah. Well, like I said, hear very deeply the conclusion that Donald act was was in agreement with, which is the procession and the return are just as real as the one, right? Uh, right. And, and and so the idea that this is all an illusion behind or in front of the one yeah. that's not this is as much the one as the one is the one right or it's not the one right and, and so it it's it, it, it any i would challenge you whenever that idea is giving you a profound sense of separation or disconnect you have misframed the idea or people have misframed right. it to you misframed it to you 
what's salutary and what's nourishing, what's true isn't always just the, this static proposition to be grasped. No, and that somehow no. this this compass of either trying to direct yourself someplace or even caring that you're directed properly, that there's a truth in the process. And so when people say, hey, if you find a toe, won't you be bored? Well, maybe the toe, the true toe, is like something like live, like live in a certain manner. Oh, it has or, to be. Or love. If you, if you think that there's non-propositional knowing, which I think deeply there is, and it's more primordial and important to your cognitive agency than propositional knowing, you're not going to capture it. If you, by theory, you mean, you know, your set of propositions. I did say, I don't think of theories just as formal systems. Uh, th that doesn't make any sense to me. I think th theories are better understood as interpretations and bridges of our formal propositions into the other kind of knowings. That's what I think theories actually do for us. The podcast is now concluded. Thank you for watching. If you haven't subscribed or clicked on that like button, now would be a great time to do so, as each subscribe and like helps YouTube push this content to more people. Also, I recently found out that external links count plenty toward the algorithm, which means that when you share on Twitter, on Facebook, on Reddit, etc., it shows YouTube that people are talking about this outside of YouTube, which in turn greatly aids the distribution on YouTube as well. If you'd like to support more conversations like this, then do consider visiting theoriesofeverything.org. Again, it's support from the sponsors and you that allow me to work on Toe full-time. You get early access to ad-free audio episodes there as well. Every dollar helps far more than you may think. Either way, your viewership is generosity enough. Thank you.